Welcome to Working Towards Nine, a podcast that strives to secure the full and equal participation of women in the legal profession, produced by the Women Lawyers Association of Michigan. Welcome to Working Towards Nine. My name is Carrie Elmassian. I'm an assistant United States attorney at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Michigan, and I'm a member of the Women's Lawyers Association of Michigan podcast committee. Today, I'm interviewing the Honorable Judge Neff, a federal district judge in the Western District of Michigan. Judge Neff has a distinguished career in both private practice and public service in Western Michigan. She truly broke glass ceilings for women in the law. Among other things, Judge Neff was the first female partner, not only in her firm, but in Grand Rapids in 1975. She served as the first woman president of the Grand Rapids Bar Association, and she was the first female Article III judge appointed to the federal bench in the Western District of Michigan. Judge Neff was also elected to four terms and served for more than 18 years as a Michigan Court of Appeals judge. Her accomplishments and contributions to the community far exceed what I have mentioned here today, so please take a minute and review her CV on our website. Without further ado, good afternoon, Judge Neff. How are you today? I'm fine, Gary. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Let's just jump into the beginning. Why law in the 1970s for a woman? I'm sure it wasn't the traditional career path for women at the time. It was a single event in my life when I was in the seventh grade. Um, I had a, uh, my social studies teacher, who was also our homeroom teacher, was somebody that everybody was afraid of, but we respected him tremendously. And we always had study hall after class. And we had a class where he organized a debate. I have no recollection of what the topic was, but I was one of the debaters. And after, when we started um, the study hall, it was his practice to patrol the classroom. <laughs> he would walk up and down the roads and make sure you were doing something productive. And I can't, I, it seems weird, but I can remember this as if it happened yesterday. I was sitting in the middle of the rows. I was way in the back. And he stopped to talk with me. And he said uh, he thought I did a, a very good job at the debate. And he thought I should consider the law as a career. Nothing could have been farther from my mind at that point, particularly since come from a, a working class immigrant background. There were no lawyers in our family, didn't even know any lawyers. And But if Mr. Shafley said you should think about this, then you definitely should think about this. And I made up my mind right then. That's what I was going to do. And I did. Wow, that's a great story. Did you ever circle back with your teacher to let him know that you followed his advice? I did. He left teaching shortly after that and got a PhD and he came back as the superintendent of schools in our district. And my mother sent me a clipping from the newspaper that he was retiring. So I thought I really had to tell him what happened. And I did. I sent him a letter and explained to him how grateful I was and that he, number one, thought enough of my ability to suggest it and that I'd had a, up until then, I was in private practice at that time, but up until then I'd had a very rewarding career. I, I have really always loved what I've done. So I did. And he wrote back, he 
was very gracious. So I saw you're from Pennsylvania, and then you came to Wayne State for law school. How did that uh, transition to Michigan come about? I was following a man. <laughs> That's a great excuse to do it. <laughs> there you go. Tell me a little bit about what was law school like for you at the time. It was not all that friendly. There were only, I think, we had a class of 200 or so, and there were six women, three in the day class, which is where I was, one of whom was married. She and her husband were both in the class. I always envied her because he always carried the books when they came to class. There wasn't a whole lot of attempt at making you feel comfortable or anything of that nature. Everybody was just tossed in there and figure it out and do it. And there was a little bit of hostility. I think there were still some students uh, who felt that women shouldn't be there. And they were not very subtle about letting us know that. But it was fine. I was, I got through it. I can't say law school was my favorite time, but I got done and here I am. After law school, did you know what direction you wanted to head in or did you fall into a particular career path based on what was available to you? What I really wanted to do was to be a trial lawyer. And when I was offered the job at the city attorney's office in Grand Rapids, it was one, really one of the best opportunities anybody could have who wants to be a trial lawyer because I was in the ordinance enforcement division where we prosecuted drunk drivers, housing violations, all kinds of criminal cases. And it was a place where you could be a trial lawyer without hurting anybody too badly. We were learning, I was learning, and I was in the courtroom almost every day. And when th things that weren't certainly earth shattering from the perspective of how important they were, but I really did develop, was able to develop a comfort zone in the courtroom. And I, I think it really stuck with me forever. There were three of us in the office and we took turns, but we would, for instance, we would pick juries on a wholesale basis. We would pick maybe 10 juries in a day and we would try maybe three or four cases in a day. Because how many, how much time does it take to try a failure to stop at a stop sign case? So it, it, in terms of getting feet planted in the courtroom and feeling comfortable in front of a judge and in front of a jury, it was just invaluable. And I, I that job I loved. I really did. That's how. It sounds like a busy time and a busy judge if you're just thrown into it and really learning how to do trials. So that sounds like a really great experience. I imagine knowing West Michigan back at that time that your colleagues were probably mostly men. Is is that accurate for what the makeup was? Oh, yeah. As When I came to town, I think I was the fourth woman in practice here. And I think there were 400, about 400 members of the Grand Rapids association. Jean McKee, who was one of the four, she's now passed on, but 
she was a, a very gracious woman and she started what ended up being the Western Michigan branch of the Women Lawyers Association. Um, it was very informal. We would take turns having the meetings at our houses and for dinner. And it was really my first opportunity at connecting with other women lawyers and having a chance to, I don't know, uh, not so much develop context or anything, but just a sense of being around other women who were doing pretty much the same thing I was doing. I can imagine it would be a little lonely not to have other women just not necessarily commiserate with, but get support from and share some stories. That sounds like that turned into a great uh, resource and maybe mentorship type of relationship that you can have them with other women. So I'm glad that you had that opportunity. You were with the city attorney for a while. Looks like you moved around a little bit. Can you walk through your transitions over the next several years? What prompted you to make some moves in your career? I had been on the attorney's office, I don't know, a year and a half or two years. And I was, I was recruited by Vanderbeen, Fryhofer and Cook, which at that time was, I think, the second or third largest firm in Grand Rapids. We were small. When I joined, we were maybe 10, 11. I don't know how big Warner Norcross was, but it wasn't a lot bigger than that. And I think one of the reasons I was recruited was George Cook. Uh, George's wife, Margaret, was a lawyer in the uh, trust department at Old Kent Bank. And, and George was a great uh, promoter of women professionals. And he was a great mentor from the perspective that he really believed in me, believed in my ability to do the work and to do it well. And so I, when they recruited me, I went and spent five years there. And then I was recruited by the Supreme Court to join the commissioner's office where there weren't any women and had never been any women. And I took that, that was, I'm not exactly sure why I took that job. I had to commute to Lansing every day, and there were some benefits to that. But it turned out I really it was a it was an interesting job. That if you don't, if you've never had any contact with it, the Supreme Court Commissioner's Office is like the Supreme Court's law firm. We worked on various. For instance, when there was a, in nineteen, I gotta get my dates straight here. 19, let's see, this was 70. In the early 80s, there was a proposed redo of the entire court rules, entire Michigan court rules. The head of it was a judge from Oakland County. And myself and another lawyer in the firm, in the commissioner's office, were given the project of reviewing all of these proposed brand new rules. And I don't, can't remember how long it took us, but it was more than six months. But you really got to dive into the changes that were being made. It was one of really the first big change to discovery, introducing discovery into litigation. And up until that time, 
the practice really was you filed your lawsuit, somebody filed an answer, and then you had a trial. It was, there was none of this. And I think discovery has gotten absolutely out of control, but there was, there was none of that. And so we, and we went through the whole thing and it was really interesting. Uh, and our report was made to the court and the court eventually adopted the Michigan court rules of 1985. I think it was. Oh, it's a really interesting experience. Um, it was. You've talked about being the first woman in that position and this first female partner and this young woman attorney in the sea of men. Did you feel pressures to do better than them or meet expectations you know, during this time in your career, um, being one of very few women in the legal community? I think the pressure that I felt was more on myself to do a good job, to prove to myself that I could do it more than anything else. I have really never been motivated in that sense by trying to impress somebody or prove something. I've mostly been trying to prove it to myself because I didn't have, I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in myself. As I said, I came from a working class immigrant family. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. Didn't have any, didn't have any context for any of this. And so I wanted, for one thing, I wanted to make my parents proud. And if anything, that was the motivating factor for me. You certainly were not only a woman of first, but a person of first in your family and what you did. And I have no doubt based on your career that your parents were incredibly proud of what you did, which brings me to the, the next topic of you becoming a court of appeals judge for several years. Walk us through how you got to that position in your career. I worked for a little over a year as a pre-hearing attorney at the court of appeals. And that was, I didn't realize that at the time that that was really when in my own subconscious, I decided I wanted to be a judge. It, it truly was not a conscious thing at all. But as I was practicing, as I was litigating, I think that was always in the back of my head. And then in, in the mid-1980s, there were openings on the Court of Appeals. I had worked there. I had a really great respect for the judges there that I knew. And so I took a flyer. I ran once and lost. And then I ran two years later and won. And I'd never been involved in politics. I was interested in it, but I never was active. And as you probably know, any, any judicial position at any level, whether it's appointed or elected, is a political process. And I learned a lot about politics in that process. It was a terrific, again, it was, I have almost everything I've done, I've really loved, but it was a something I enjoyed doing for a long time. And I never thought I would ever go beyond that. That to me was the pinnacle. There were a couple of times when I was approached to run for the Supreme Court and I was really not interested in doing that. Uh, that is a brutal 
race. That that election is just brutal because you're running statewide. Nobody knows who the heck you are. Not very many people care who the heck you are. And I just was really not all that interested. But then in, in the early 2000s, the opportunity to come here by appointment to the federal bench, where again, I had never really wanted to be a trial judge. I was always, I just didn't really think I would do it very well. I was really worried about that. And everybody thought I would not get an appointment. So <laughs> it was so But I did get the appointment. And what I have found is this is truly the best job any lawyer could ever have, ever. It is challenging. It is enlightening. It is, you learn for the first, I don't know, even now, but for the first three or four years, I learned something new every single day. There were so many statutes that you could violate, right? So it, it has, and not only that, but the, the judges of this district, just a great place to be. I just can't even tell you how much I've enjoyed this job. It has been just wonderful. That's great to hear. And I started at the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2008, so just shortly after you took the bench. And I would hesitate to ask how were the judges with you joining as the first woman, but having gotten to know them over the years, they're all just such commendable people that I imagine it was pretty easy to have you on board. It was. At that time, we had Judge Anselm Donna Kalamazoo, Judge Quist, Judge Bell here. And you may or may not know this, but Judge Bell for what for about almost two years was the only Article Three judge in this district. Judge Quist was senior by then, and he was handling a full docket. But it was it had really reached the point where it was a judicial emergency, and that is what sort of led to the appointment of the three of us, Judge uh, Maloney. Judge Yonker and myself. And when I came on board, Judge Quist and Judge Bell could not have been more accommodating, more helpful than they were. They were just terrific. And of course, both of them have very strong, assertive wives, I would point out. <laughs> and I think that really does affect a man's attitudes about women. And so they were both just terrific. I just, I don't know, the whole thing was, has been great from the word go. We had four terrific magistrate judges. It was just good right from the beginning. That's so great to hear. I know recently, I want to say March of 2021, you um, adjusted your status to senior status. Can you Give us a little bit of information about what senior status means. What is your daily work life now versus what it was when you were a, a full active judge? The biggest change is that as a senior judge, you can decide how heavy a caseload you want to carry. And I, for a while, I kept a full caseload, but then I began to see the benefits of being able to take a little bit more time off. 
And so I have gradually reduced my caseload. And now I am not taking any new cases. I'm expecting to go inactive a little later this year. But it took a little while to realize that I could take some time off and not have to be, feel guilty about it. So that's really pretty much what it is. It gives you an, gives you an opportunity to move towards retirement because almost every federal judge I've known who gets to the point where they know it's kind of time to move on, it's very difficult to let go of this job because it is, it's just so great. And there's a, there's a certain, I don't know, status to it too, that it's hard to let go, especially when like most of us, I, I was talking with Judge Carmody not too long ago. And I said to her, when's the last time you didn't have a job? I thought that for, we both talked about that. The last time I didn't have a job, I was 16 years old. Not that I've worked full time forever, but I've always had a job and Judge Carmody too. And I think that's true of all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and so letting go of work for anybody who's done it for a long time and who at least partially identifies themselves that way. It's, it's hard to pull back uh, and, and not have that in your life. What will you do with your retirement time? Do you have anything exciting on the horizon? Nothing exciting, I don't think. I have three grandchildren. They live in New York. So I think we'll spend, my husband and I will spend some more time there. I have a daughter who lives in Chicago. We'll see her more often. And beyond that, I, people keep asking me, what are you going to do? Are you going to volunteer? you going to look for another job? No, I want to really find out what it's like not to have a job. I have, I've got two dogs that I love and I'll spend a little more time with them, I think. But I plan to sleep in a bit and just to be lazy, I think. That all sounds very nice and very well-deserved. <laughs> you should do that. Looking back on your career, was there a particular case that you presided over that affected you, maybe stays with you still? Oh, there have been a couple. One of the major cases I had when I was in private practice was a, mal a medical malpractice case, what, what we called a bad baby case. And I can never forget that little girl who was just beautiful. She, I'm blanking on her name, but when I was involved in, with that case, she was, I think she was about three when we started and we concluded it three or four years later. But I just remember thinking how sad it was that, and her parents were really delightful people how sad it was that this beautiful little person, she had beautiful blonde hair, great big blue eyes and beautiful skin. And she was the kind of kid you just wanted to reach out and hug. That really affected me pretty profoundly. And at the other end of that spectrum, I had one criminal case involving a mother who I have a hard time talking about this case, but she was involved. She got involved online with a man 
aunt. She was divorced. And she got to where she was much more eager to please her, her boyfriend. And this, the little girl, again, she was just a sweet kid. Oh, my God. But the thing that really pushed me over the edge on that case was after the case got started, and it got started because her father, who had custody on weekends and vacations and stuff, she told him that she, what had, what had been happening with her mother and this boyfriend, and it wasn't very pretty. Uh, and he's the one who got involved with um, social services and so forth. And that's when the, the prosecution started. And of course, they got her into counseling right away. But the thing, Carrie, that will, I will never forget as long as I live is that one of the things that she said to that counselor was, I was really afraid that mom was going to give me to David. And I didn't even hear her say, I just read it in the report. And I just, that will stay with me forever. Just stay with me forever. Wow. I'm sure a lot of stories come across your desk and that you have to deal with. As a member of this community, I appreciate your work in that regard. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I can never let a judge go without asking, what's your biggest pet peeve of lawyers? And do you have any tips for courtroom presentation or things that us as practitioners can do better when we're appearing in court? Obviously, at the top of the list is, is being prepared. And that's one of the things about being in federal court that's much different from state court. Uh, the, the lawyers, I think, have a much higher motivation to be well-prepared and to do well. But I think more than anything, it's that lawyers just talk too damn much. And I have to, I've told this to many lawyers. When I try a case, I always talk to the jury afterwards invariably they will say, why do they keep repeating the same thing over and over again? We are not stupid. We are listening and they do listen. They take notes, they know what's going on. And it's a, it's a message I've never been able to convey very well, I'm afraid. So yeah, I, being a trial lawyer is, I think one of the toughest jobs that there can be for a lawyer and also can be the most rewarding. Sure. Before we go, I wanted to give you a chance to share some advice for women lawyers. You've certainly paved the way for many of us. And I thank you for that. Personally, um, do you have any you know, final remarks for the women lawyers in Michigan that are listening? I really don't even know what kind of advice I would give because things have changed so much. I see you young women in the U.S. Attorney's Office coming into my courtroom so poised and so prepared. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so good. It really is. It just, it thrills me. And when Judge Jarbeau and Judge Beckering joined our bench, it was like, man, I have actually lived long enough. I think the most important thing is not to look elsewhere for approval or affirmation. Do your work and feel good about yourself. Be confident. And if you're prepared, there's no judge on the planet who will be hard on you. That is the biggest thing that you can do for yourself and for your clients. 
when I was in practice many years ago, we had a sign in our library that said proper preparation reduces peak performance. And it's the sign sounds corny, but it is darn true. Just be prepared. Come and be prepared. And don't the other one other, I do have one other, and I know you have to go. One other peeve. I really don't like it when lawyers are snarky or sarcastic or make things personal. I think you need to be professional at all times and treat not only fellow counsel, but court staff, witnesses, jurors, treat them with the respect that they deserve and, and leave the sarcastic stuff at home. It's very annoying. Thank you. That's wonderful advice and words of wisdom. It was truly an honor to speak with you this afternoon. Thank you again for your time. And I hope you enjoy being bored in your retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Thanks for the interview. Yeah. Take care, Judge. Bye. You too. Thank you for listening to Working Towards Nine. Music is provided by David Benny. To learn more about this podcast and WLAM, please visit our website at womenlawyers.org. The views expressed during this episode do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WLAM or its members.